electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Julia Borston. Deirdre has the morning off, but we're actually going to see her in a second. Uh, today, a chip off the old block. The street says expect continued outperformance for semis in 2022. After a 5% dip this past week is now the time to buy. Then best week ever. That's what Uber CEO Dara Kosmashai, he told our next guest when they spoke yesterday. Lloyd Walmsley joins us with his top internet picks. Plus, comply or goodbye. Google tells employees they'll eventually be fired if they don't get vaccinated. The CNBC reporter behind that scoop is going to join us this hour, John. Yeah, we, we got the day off. We still have to check in. What's going on here? Anyway, we'll start with some bullish sentiment for the chip sector. After more than a 35% rise this year, that's 10% better than the S&P's gain. Chips hit a snag over the last week, so is now the time to find some winners within semis. NVIDIA, Marvell, and Applied Materials making up three of the top four biggest gainers on the NDX this year, and analysts predicting 2022 will bring more of the same. This morning, Deutsche names Broadcom, Qualcomm, and OnSemi top picks, saying these names are steady performers, somewhat independent of market dynamics. Morgan Stanley also likes Qualcomm, naming it their top U.S. semi-stock going into next year, pointing to the opportunities in 5G. And then Evercore going in a different direction, highlighting Marvell, Micron, and NVIDIA, predicting sales for the chip sector are going to rise by 13% year over year. Julia, we in particular have had Qualcomm and Marvell on Tech Check recently, highlighting these opportunities, not just in 5G, but in the intelligent edge as more networking capability comes into not just the cloud, but devices like cars on the ground, they see opportunities. Yes, and we're increasingly going to be seeing more of these devices like cars be connected to the Internet of Things. And we're going to be talking about that more later in the hour. But looking broadly at the chip sector, it's interesting looking at Morgan Stanley's report saying that the global semis industry appears to be approaching a plateau, Carl. And this idea that there's going to be growth next year as people sort of catch up with the backlog. And then there's true growth in the second half of the year as they restock those inventories, Carl. Yeah, uh, interesting. A lot of the notes about 2022, guys, where as it pertains to chips, is that a lot of these supply dynamics are going to be changing in different verticals at different times. So autos might be happening at a different time than PCs. So it's going to be a difficult and challenging year to trade semis. Although, as John mentioned, Qualcomm has gotten on quite a few lists of uh, top picks, uh, John, for 2022. That's one thing I did notice. Big analyst days. For both of those names recently, uh, they talked to us not long after those analyst days, actually on the analyst day for Qualcomm, and then Marvell out with that big earnings report right after the, the analyst day. It was almost as if Matt Murphy kind of thought that the street wouldn't believe him if he had just 
rolled out those results in the analyst day, so I had to <laughs> wait for earnings call to, uh, to actually uh, up those targets into the next year. Yeah. Uh, meantime, got some news on EVs today. Phil LeBeau's got that for us. Morning, Phil. Morning, Carl. Take a look at shares of General Motors, the company announcing that it plans to reveal early next year an electric version of the GMC Sierra pickup truck. This electric Sierra is going to be unveiled next year. When it goes into production remains uh, to be determined, as well as when it ultimately goes on sale. Remember, the next year is going to be huge for General Motors. They're going to be ramping up production of the GMC Hummer, the electric uh, sport utility truck. And then they have the E-Silverado, Chevy Silverado, that they're going to be showing early next year. That likely will go into production either late next year or early 2023. So this is the beginning of General Motors really ramping up its cadence of electric vehicles. Again, GM announcing that it will be unveiling an electric version of the GMC Sierra pickup truck. That will be happening next year. Guys, back to you. Thanks so much, Phil. GM shares down about one and a half percent. Let's turn now to finding value and opportunities in the Internet sector. UBS bullish on large caps like Alphabet, Amazon and Meta. The firm also expressing confidence, like much of the street, in its buy rating for Uber after sitting down with CEO Dara Khazrushahi just yesterday. Joining us now, the analysts behind those calls, Lloyd Walmsley of UBS. Lloyd, so good to see you. Uh, quite an exciting interview with Dara Khazrushahi yesterday, saying that last week was a very strong one for the company. What was your main takeaway from that interview with him? Yeah, thanks for taking me, uh, having me on the show. Uh, our biggest takeaway was really two, two things. One, there's been a lot of concern on what the company would look like in terms of bookings growth after the recovery. You know, can they grow at a rapid clip? And they laid out a lot of reasons to think that growth in 2023 would be faster than 2019. So they're laying the groundwork for investors to get more comfortable in the long-term growth. And then the second thing, there's been a lot of concern on potential margin risk from investment in quick delivery and grocery and all these new verticals. But they basically came out and said in 2022, they will be able to deliver uh, inline or even better than long-term incremental margins in the delivery side of their business, despite that investment. So I think they really addressed a bunch of investor fears uh, at that webcast event yesterday. Yeah, certainly some interesting updates there. I want to get your take on Amazon. You have a buy rating and a $4,700 price target on that stock, quite a premium to where it's trading now. What is going to get that stock to those levels? Yeah, so the, the, you know, the stock's done very little over the last 18 months. It obviously saw a huge pickup in the beginning of the pandemic. And I think they've been investing a ton of money across the, the business, building out more logistics capacity, investing in one day, investing in content and absorbing COVID costs. And as we get into next year, we think some of the COVID costs start to go away. They've taken up pricing on the logistics side for FBA pricing for the, the biggest price hike we've seen in years at the FBA business. We suspect they'll raise prime subscription pricing and then revenue growth will come back as comps ease. And when you get you know, Amazon coming out of these investment cycles, the stock tends to do well. So we think 22 will be a great year across the, the retail business. And then and then AWS uh, and the advertising should continue to drive profit growth as well. Hey, Lloyd, good morning. It's John. So if I were going to have a counter argument to um, the, the growth 
opportunities that you see uh, in, in large caps it would probably be that I think the general public largely knows the stories of those companies. Their valuations are already relatively strong, not relative maybe to the rest of the market, but historically. And, and so maybe the opportunities are in stories that are lesser known uh, industries or you know, subgroups that are seen as less sexy. Why is that wrong? Yeah, so we, we got, we've gotten a lot of pushback since our launch on, for example, the advertising names. And some of the concerns have been we saw such a remarkable ad environment in 2021, growth in the whole global ad industry is up almost 20% this year. So, you know, as growth decelerates, isn't that going to be a problem for these stocks? Well, last week at our TMT conference, we hosted the research groups from the big ad agency holding companies. So we had Zenith, Magna, and Group M, and they laid out their forecast for next year for the global ad in, in uh global ad industry to grow another 12%. It's not 20% that we're seeing this year, but in any other context, it's a remarkable growth outlook. Take our numbers for Google, for example. We're only looking for 14% growth at Google next year in gross ad revenue. We're looking for 20% for Facebook. These are businesses that are taking share. Google outgrew the industry this year by 2x. So if, if, if those... Um, ad industry holding company forecasts are right on the ad market. We think there's a lot of upside that isn't well appreciated by investors in the ad names. And that, that's a great example of where we think there's opportunity in even in the mega caps. Ah, interesting. One, Lloyd, one uh, comment that uh, Dara made that kind of got some attention was his view on how M&A is going to fit into Uber, but more specifically, you know, tech at large. Uh, what role will it play? Uh, will it be a diminished role compared to the last couple of years? Look, I think for the for the mega cap companies, it's it's really hard for them to do M&A. You know, you just look at Facebook. Uh, is getting challenged on the the, the Giphy acquisition, uh, you know, very small tuck-in. So I think the big guys are going to be restricted in what they can do. Now, you know, for smaller players, for example, DoorDash acquiring Walt, you know, there's probably consolidation uh, that there's a view consolidation needs to happen in global food delivery. So th those are markets that are more competitive. There's not as much antitrust concern. There's potential for consolidation. Um, and then, look, capital return was something we haven't really thought about much from 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 Uber, but they will. You know, we project they'll generate a lot of free cash as the recovery happens in rideshare and margins continue to march up. And they hinted that, you know, capital return was on their radar uh, more so than M&A. So that 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 was something new to us. Lloyd, before we let you go, I want to get your thoughts on the online ad space. You mentioned Google, and Google is your top pick in that area. But, you know, I'm hearing a lot about the death of the cookie. We hear a lot about Meta and Snap having to navigate those Apple iOS changes and, and figure out how to target consumers in a new way. Tell us why you like Google and Snap in light of some of those challenges. It seems like one of the main appeals of Google has nothing to do with advertising and everything to do with their cloud services. Well, you're right. What are probably our most differentiated call on Google, it really relates to the cloud business. And our call is that the growth in the top line in cloud is going to come in much stronger this year uh, than the consensus estimates. And the costs are actually going to come down faster than consensus, leading to a faster inflection towards profitability for Google Cloud. 
And that's really predicated, if you look back since Thomas Kurian joined uh, Google Cloud and brought the, you know, a huge effort to the Salesforce, you look at 4Q2020, they saw the biggest growth in their backlog uh, that they've seen you know, historically. And we're about entering a year from that. And that's when these cloud deals start to generate a lot of revenue. The first year is in preparing the migration. The second and third year is when they actually start to spend uh, dollars on the platforms. And we think that starts to show up this year. And I think right now, Google gets almost no value attribution for cloud and its shares. We think they are worth something in the neighborhood of 25% of the value of Google. So if that starts to get value attribution, we think it's a big new tailwind to, to Alphabet shares. And then on the Snap side, look, I think the next six months are really hard to know. They are trying to build what they're, they're calling this advanced conversions and get that deployed and get that tested. I think that, that could take some time. Where we get really excited on Snap over the next 18 months is the AR lens ads. We talked to about 20 advertisers in the industry before we launched our coverage, and it, the feedback on their AR ads was was really positive. They're still a little bit tough uh, to deploy, but they're making it better and better uh, and easier to deploy. Yeah, that is certainly the next frontier. Lloyd, thanks so much for talking to us today about your top picks. Thanks for having me. Meantime, a number of tech executives are meeting with the Biden administration today to discuss funding for broadband access. Elon Moy has more on that. Morning, Elon. Good morning, Carl. Well, the administration's goal is to connect every household to high-speed Internet by the end of the decade. And it's turning to the tech industry to understand how increasing access can benefit the bottom line for business and boost the economy more broadly. The CEOs of Etsy and eBay, one of Airbnb's co-founders, and the CFO of Block will participate in a roundtable with the Commerce Department this afternoon. But Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo told me that universal coverage will not only help the big players, but also small businesses, especially those run by women. You know, women are still not back in the workforce the way we were pre-pandemic. And one way for women to make some money in a flexible way, you know, and still be able to be there for their families is on selling on Etsy, being a host on Airbnb. But you cannot do that without broadband. Take Katherine Egger. She uses Airbnb to rent out the guest house on her nine acre farm in Colorado. It's pretty remote and the cell service isn't great. We get like one bar. So, you know, it was enough for phone calls and, you know, some some Internet, uh, you know, browsing. But there was certainly not enough bandwidth for Zoom. So, um, yeah, there was a, definitely um, it was like holding our breath, kind of waiting to see what was going to happen. Now, when she first moved in, the Internet was spotty as well. But now she's connected so she can be on Airbnb and also teach online yoga classes. So, John, she's pretty much living the dream. Pack over to you. Yeah, making that need for broadband real, Elon. Thank you. Uh, one more stock to mention, C3AI surging right now, up nearly 10% so far on the day, announcing a new stock repurchase plan up to $100 million. Shares are down more than 70% since the start of the year. And Tom Siebel has told us here on Tech Check he's confident in the business trajectory, so he's putting some money where his mouth is. Tech Check, just getting started.
What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Let's get a gut check on Palo Alto Networks. The cybersecurity firm seeing a boost this morning after being named a top 2022 pick by Goldman Sachs and Mizuho. Goldman bullish on Palo Alto along with other security stocks such as Sentinel One and Okta following this past weekend's Log4j attack. Mizuho encouraged by higher revenue growth and saying that it, quote, easily possesses the strongest array of cloud assets among traditional firewall-centric vendors. Carl? Uh, thanks, JB. In the meantime, she's on vacation, but you can't keep Deirdre Bosa away from breaking news. Dee is here with a scoop on Airbnb. Hey, Dee. Hey, Carl. In the return of the home studio, the news that I have to bring our audience is that Amrita Ahuja, Block CFO, formerly Square, is joining the board of Airbnb. Now, I've talked to Brian Chesky in the past about what he looks for in a board member, and he says that he really wants someone that challenges him and his company. And He's sort of shameless in asking for advice, which could make Ahuja a particularly interesting choice. We know that Square, now Block, has gone all in on Bitcoin and the blockchain, and she's personally advocated for it as well, making the argument earlier this year that every major company should have some Bitcoin in its war chest. And when you take a look at Airbnb's cash reserves, they've grown to $8 billion from about $2.5 billion at the start of the pandemic. Of course, they've had an IPO in that time. But beyond the potential of sort of crypto reserves. I've talked to Chesky also in the past about his thinking on crypto. And he has made the argument that Airbnb and crypto are not that dissimilar and that Airbnb uses this distributed model to make the economics available for more people. So he's very interested in it. And this move by adding Amrita Huja, the block CFO, formerly Square CFO, to the board could be really interesting in terms of crypto and payments and a bunch of other things, guys. I think that's so fascinating, Dee. I mean, uh, you think about uh, her experience at Square, obviously association uh, with Dorsey, but it would be interesting if you had a sort of a uh, contingent of CFOs who were becoming almost evangelists for, uh, for crypto and were sort of getting that word through various companies on which they do serve on the board, like this one. Yeah, and I keep going back to the fact that one of the most interesting things about that Airbnb uh, S1, the IPO about one year ago, was how much of its searches and its growth is organic. A lot of the other OTAs, online travel agencies, they rely on Google, but Airbnb has been building its own ecosystem throughout its history as a company. More than 90% of searches happen directly through Airbnb, not through Google. So it's kind of this company that could potentially be ripe for this sort of decentralized um, method of having people book their trips or just in the whole crypto ethos. And 
it'll be interesting. We'll talk to Brian Chesky, I hope, in the new year about what his thinking is on this, a little more on that. Deirdre, it's so interesting and such a fascinating comparison as we talk about Web3 being all about being decentralized. I'm wondering, what do you think the next step will be or could potentially be for Airbnb as it pushes more into into the, the crypto world? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest, and I don't think that Brian Chesky has been super clear in the past beyond saying that he's interested in it. But I think the idea that Amrita Ahuja is joining the board simply means that he's starting potentially to think about it in a more serious way, especially based on his comments previously of what he looks for in a board member, someone who he can really lean on. Um, so we'll see. It could be any number of things. I think I asked him at the IPO too, what are you thinking when you have this ecosystem? Where do you go from here? Could Airbnb potentially have its own cryptocurrency? That's probably a bridge too far right now. But you know, all of these possibilities as we talk about Web3 and crypto day after day, guys. Fascinating stuff, Dee. Thanks for bringing it to us from your vacation. We appreciate it. And after the break, how the Fed's taper plans will impact tech valuations, plus Chinese stocks listed on U.S. exchanges under pressure as the two countries take steps to reduce financial ties. There's more tech tech after this. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back. Fed meeting this afternoon. And as we've seen some significant fluctuations in tech valuations, Bob Pisani has a story about how they're connected. Bob. They are indeed, uh, John. Since Powell indicated that the Fed would stop characterizing higher inflation as, quote, transitory, that was on November 30th, techs had said had some trouble advancing. Take a look. Particularly software stocks have had trouble. They're down roughly 10%. This is since November 30th. Semis are down 5%. Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund is down 14%. Big software names like Cloudflare, Zscaler, PageDuty, Datadog, and Adobe, they're down 11 to 30% since Powell turned hawkish. Why is this happening? Because stocks that have high cash flows and high valuations, tech stocks, they get hit because higher rates in bonds compete with stocks. Why take risks with high valuations if you can get the same performance with bonds with less risk? Investors instead have fled to cash or into Apple, which is up 8% since November 30th, and it's become something of a safe haven for tech investors. The Fed's aggressive about face is calling into questions sky-high valuations on many tech names. J.P. Morgan software analyst Sterling Audi was on this show yesterday, reducing his ratings on Adobe and a dozen other software stocks. He says cash flow growth rates are what matters for tech valuations. He wrote yesterday, quote, this has been 
consistent since 2000, and it brings into focus whether growth rates can sustain or moderate at a tolerable level to keep valuations propped up. And that's the issue, propping up valuations. This may be the first of many reevaluations. Other tech analysts and strategists are also nervous right now. Justin Post, who's Bank of America's internet analyst, noted today that after a strong 2020, his internet stock universe was down 13% in 2021. In a note to clients this morning, he said, quote, our B of A strategy team has a somewhat bearish view on the S&P returns in 2022, given high valuations and potential impact of higher interest rates. And we expect a choppy 2022. Now, his main hope for a stronger 2022 valuations have already begun to adjust. And, Carl, we are seeing that now. We'll see if that continues into the new year. Carl? All right, Bob, thanks. It's a great setup here. Let's dig into the re-rating of at least parts of the tech ecosystem. Some of those individual stocks, as you know, down 40, 50, 60 plus percent in the last few months. Our next guest says to stick with the fastest movers. How do you square that as an investor right now? Joining us this morning, JC2 Venture CEO, former Cisco CEO, John Chambers. John, every time we talk about uh, valuation compression, I think of what you said last year. You said 40 to 50 percent of the Fortune 500 won't exist in a decade. Probably 60 percent of the startups won't exist in a decade, and a number of them won't exist in two to three years. It's going to be a brutal change. Is, that, is this the kind of thing that reflects what you were trying to get across back then? It does. And I think the, the key word now for investors and for business leaders is uh, the ability to be very agile. But what you're going to see, and this really speaks to the valuation of the companies that have larger valuations, they will always be replaced. The number of unicorns doubled this year uh, in the U.S., over 500 unicorns in total, but over 260 new year to date. So you're going to have a feeder system coming through. So in total, as long as you're betting on a portfolio, I think you're going to do well with these new companies coming into the market. But I do think agility is the key watchword. And my key concern this year is actually around inflation, which you all have been talking about. Yeah. When you say agility, what does that mean? Uh, does that mean high levels of cash or some sort of cash? What, what metric do you look to as, as sort of the golden uh, lens? I look to the metric of the CEO, she or he, do they move quickly and adjust quickly? Secondly, out of my 20 startups, we all raised cash very aggressively over the last nine months, so we're positioned for a two-year run. Third, I do think the economy is going to do okay, uh, but I think they're going to be winners and losers, uh, as you've seen typically when interest rates tighten, which I think inevitably they will. So I think the leaders will be in the internet category. You all talked about it earlier. I like the traditional players of Google and Amazon and Facebook, but I think there'll be a new generation of leaders as well, uh, the unicorns that become decacorns and grow beyond it. And then I like some of the semiconductor players because of the emphasis of, uh, about uh, the importance of that in our economy. Companies like NVIDIA, AMD, that I think are very well run and very well focused for the future. So as you look to the future, uh, you know, tell us what you think the trends are going to be beyond those mega cap stocks. I mean, I see in your notes that you think that emerging tech will go mainstream. What qualifies as emerging tech and how do interest rate concerns and uh, con sort of rising inflation play into some of those companies? 
So in the sequence you raised, Julia, uh, when I think about the emerging technology, the areas I would bet big time on is artificial intelligence. Uh, last year, we said it would be at, at the session with you all, it would be the year of the unicorn. And it's where startups become unicorns and then grow beyond. It was by far and away the best unicorn uh, growth on a global basis. With the majority of countries around the world, the US, France, uh, Germany, uh, the UK, more than doubling their unicorns. And that means job creation, future IPOs, et cetera. The one loser was China, only 15% growth in unicorn. And I think perhaps their economic policy, and for us watching it from a distance and having watched their 14th five-year plan, uh, I'm, I, I think they may have some trouble in GDP growth looking five to 10 years out, because if you don't feed the unicorns, you don't feed the future growth in terms of the overall approach. But I like artificial intelligence. There's going to be the next Cisco, the next Facebook, the next Google uh, out of that. Uh, and I like the cloud moving to the edge. I think people who really get that right in cybersecurity are the areas I'm personally investing very heavily in. John, good morning. Uh, hey, I'm John. not saying history is repeating itself, but I remember the late 90s was another time when big tech uh, was looking at some pretty big valuations and expectations of continued strength into the future. And then there was a valuation reset that I know you remember very well. Uh, in painfully well. <laughs> painfully well. And granted, it wasn't just a valuation reset. There were other things going on. But how are we going to know if that's happening again with all of this rosy feeling about how strong big tech is and how deserving, therefore, it is of the valuation strength it has? Well, first is uh, I think uh, Carl pointed out at the beginning uh, that there's a concern here uh, that there are going to be a certain number of losers. The Fortune 500, how many of them disappear? The uh, SPOCs that went into place, how many of them disappear? So I think it's going to be a blended version in terms of the approach. But it's different in many ways. And painful for me, I went from the most valuable company in the world to people saying, John, can you do your job? And we came back strong. But boy, it was a painful two years. Uh, that time was different, however. There were a number of companies that were built on customers, and 25% of my customers at Cisco disappeared literally in one quarter. And so it is different in terms of the fundamentals this time. Uh, most of my companies that I'm involved with have very good balanced business across enterprise and consumers. And tech has now gone mainstream. In the 2000s, it was largely service providers and enterprise. Now tech is everywhere. It's digital countries, digital business, et cetera. It's here to stay. There's every company is a digital company. And so that fundamentals have changed. But will there be breakage in this? Yes, I think there will be uh, John and Carl and Julia Tudor in terms of what you said earlier. Well, I hope we get a chance before year-end, uh, John, to go back on some of your calls earlier in the year, including your call on China, which might have been one of the most prescient that we've heard on this program, at least. We'll save it for next time, though. We appreciate it. Always good to see you. It's a pleasure. Thank you all. Happy holidays. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, John. Thank you, Julia. You all have a great day. You too. John Chambers. Bye-bye. Roku shares plummeting today. That stock down over 10%. Uh, this comes as there was an analyst note that lowered its December 2022 price target to $315. That was down from $435, saying that better reflects peer multiples. But there is another factor at play here. 
Roku was hit with a patent infringement ruling from the International Trade Commission that could potentially ban some of its products being imported. We reached out to Roku about this. They told us that they do not anticipate any disruption in their ability to import their products. But we do see that that stock is now down nearly 11 percent. Uh, yeah, there's a couple uh, couple names that are getting hurt. Uh, Roblox and Roku having a, a tough day, Julia. Meanwhile, coming up, Google threatening to fire employees who don't follow vaccine mandates. The CNBC reporter behind that story will join us in a moment when Tech Check is back in two. Google telling employees that they will lose pay and will eventually be fired if they don't follow vaccination rules. Jennifer Elias had that scoop for CNBC.com and joins us now. Jennifer, so interesting here. My first question is, what kind of reaction are you hearing out of employees at Google? Yeah, well, so far what I'm hearing from employees is, you know, they're, they're a combination of people who are in the camp where they want to feel safe. And then when they do come back to the office, they want to know that everyone around them is vaccinated. Um, and for Google, that means that most people are going to be coming into the office in the new year at least three days a week. Um, and so there's a portion of folks who are, you know, excited and happy about that. And then there's a small portion of folks who um, are, you know, think this is an overreach. And we reported a couple weeks ago how several hundred employees signed a, a manifesto essentially opposing the vaccine mandate and um, upset about the walk back from what executives initially said would happen, which was that you would be able to work from home if you didn't uh, want to get vaccinated. So there's really a combination here. But I'm seeing a lot of folks who are saying that they're happy about this and that they, you know, it makes them feel a bit safer. Jennifer, I know a number of companies are reporting that more than 90% of their workforces overall have self-reported that they are vaccinated. I don't know if you know Google's percentage, but I'm also curious if you have a sense of how this COVID dynamic is changing Silicon Valley culture. Back before, a couple years ago, there was very much this you know, concerted effort through free food and dry cleaning and all sorts of other things to keep people close together in office spaces, even without walls, without cubicles and open which is now, I guess, completely not cool. Uh, but, but how is that changing the way people think about perhaps working together, being together? Yeah, I think it comes down to something that you've talked about in this show is people want flexibility. Um, they still want to be able to get those free perks. I know a lot of Googlers who have talked to me about the only reason they're excited about going back into the office is to have that free food that they haven't had over the last you know, year and a half. Um, so I think that'll still play an important part and people will like the convenience of that. But ultimately, I think most people are looking for flexibility and that option to come in and also the option to kind of travel and, you know, live a nomad life if they want or, um, you know, move if they want uh, without getting their pay docked. So um, I think it's a lot shifted a lot more to kind of flexibility and away from those perks. But there's certainly a large contingent of people who are very much excited to get free meals again. <laughs> Hey, finally, Jen, you know, uh, Google's been um, 
uh, a leader in, in whatever protocol uh, they've set forth. They've been one of the earliest to do so. And a lot of people uh, react to that by saying, well, uh, there are few companies that are better at synthesizing big data who understand virology better than, than Alphabet and Google. I wonder, is that view shared widely uh, in the Valley, that they're somehow, that they have better eyes on this than most? I think so, yeah. Google's always been, as you said, it's been this big data company, uh, perhaps more so than any other tech company. And they really try to, you know, at least they say they try to ground many of their de decisions based on data. Um, at the same time, you have employees like this vaccine mandate, for example, folks who I've heard from who uh, say that Google isn't taking into account other forms of data like antibody testing and whatnot. So I think you're probably going to we're going to hear a little bit more about, you know, employees who kind of um, are undecided about which types of data uh, the company kind of chooses <laughs> to use and how they apply some of these policies. But I certainly think everything everyone looks to Google because they do set the standard for culture and um, and, you know, they do have these sort of annual surveys and regular surveys about what the employees want. And they do try to take a lot of that data and form their policies with it. Right, right. Fascinating. Jen, uh, great piece. Uh, thanks so much. Still to come this morning, uh, a look at Tesla stock and Elon Musk's position as person of the year at uh, Time Magazine and now the FT. Plus, CNBC asked leaders across tech at our Technology Executive Council Summit how, uh, to weigh in on how the metaverse is going to play out. Here's a sample of some answers. I actually think Web 2.0 was very similar, right? The potential, it took about five years to realize the potential. We don't think a ton about it other than we want to make sure that it's secure. It can be a combination of real and overblown. Connection is important piece, so it's, it's wait and see. There's a hype cycle to all of these things. So we, I mean, a, lo a lot of metaverse is just an extension of VR and AR. It's not a new concept. some ugly trading recently across e-commerce stocks. Uh, Warby Parker continuing its slide since going public via direct listing at 54. That was back in late September, down more than 20%. Stitch Fix, another direct-to-consumer name beaten up pretty good, down 70% on the year, more than 80% off the 52-week high. And while e-commerce volumes have soared, individual stocks have not been the beneficiaries. Two ETFs that track those stocks, ONLN and iBuy, have lost a quarter of their value this year. And the large players like Amazon on Walmart, Shopify have lagged the S&P this year. Today's retail sales number, John, may not do much to reverse that. Fascinating, Carl. Uh, if you wish you'd been able to buy Stitch Fix at the IPO price, now you almost can't. Well, speaking of recent underperformers, names like Cloudflare, Adobe, and Zscaler have come under pressure the last month. All closed sharply lower yesterday. That's not stopping the IPOs. Cloud company Samsara going public in an $11 billion listing this morning. The CEO's with us next. Don't go away. Another multi-billion dollar cloud-connected valuation this morning. Samsara, an Internet of Things company, focused on connected operations, pricing its shares at $23, valuing the firm at $11.5 billion. Joining us now, live from the New York Stock Exchange, Samsara's co-founder and CEO, Sanjit Biswa. Sanjit, good to see you. Uh, not long ago, we were talking for Fort Knox about the idea behind uh, the company, but you know, logistics and supply chain uh, and just being efficient has become ever more important even since then. 
Uh, tell us about how your growth has reflected that, especially your latest annualized recurring revenue figures. Well, uh, thanks, John, for having me on. It's great to see you again. So when we spoke, we were talking about what Samsara does, which is connect the world of physical operations to the cloud. So if you think about supply chains, we're able to provide real-time visibility into trucks on the road, uh, assets that are out in the field. And that's incredibly important at a time like this when people are really trying to understand what's going on with these supply chains being disrupted. Something that used to always take six weeks might take you know, six months. And so that's a real issue. What we're doing to help with that is we provide complete systems that give our customers that visibility. And you can see that reflect in the revenue numbers. We're coming up on nearly $500 million in annual recurring revenue, been growing uh, close to 70% year over year. And so it's exciting to see customers digitizing and looking for this visibility and getting it from our platform. We'll talk about the hardware component of this, the sensors necessary to give you the insights uh, that customers need, and to what degree uh, that's an opportunity, to what degree that's a bottleneck to growth. So John, one of the interesting things is there are sensors everywhere. If you think about a modern truck, for example, there are somewhere between 150 and 200 sensors on the truck itself providing information about fuel and pressure and all these other telematic data sources. What we're able to do is connect that sensor data up to the cloud. So our gateways basically take that data, bring it into the cloud, and that's what unlocks the value. Um, and so what we're seeing now is that customers are very interested in understanding everything that's going on at scale, interested in uh, analyzing that data and figuring out how to uh, unlock some business insights. So that's where we focus as a company. The sensors are out there. We just made it possible to get the data into the cloud, analyze it, and provide our customers those insights. Sanjeev, I'm curious where you see your next leg of growth coming from. In your S1, you said you're targeting industries that are not already swept up in digital transformation. This idea is that there are a lot of industries out there, such as the transportation industry, which you're focused on now, and the shipping industry, that have huge potential to really embrace Internet of Things. What are going to be the next range of industries that you could, you could work with? So we are fortunate to work with a very broad base of customers. If you think about the world of physical operations, it's close to 40% of the global GDP. So it's partly supply chain, but also construction companies, energy utilities, even local governments and municipalities. So we work across that spectrum and uh, work to build them products that go and give them those insights. So in terms of the next leg for us, it's to go and penetrate this market. The total addressable market we serve is about $55 billion. It's digitizing very quickly. Uh, these industries are adopting technology at a pace like never before, growing over 20% year over year uh, to a scale of about $100 billion over the next three years. So in terms of where we go next, it's really going deeper with our customers and doing more for them. Uh, you know, looking forward to this milestone as you uh, start to trade. I see those indications up above $24 a share. Sanji, thank you for being with us. Thank you, John. Nice to be here. And speaking of shortages during this period, uh, here's another company addressing them. Human-centered AI company Forethought helps provide businesses with customer service solutions powered by AI. They just raised a $65 million Series C round, and I spoke with CEO and co-founder Dion Nicholas this morning in a Fort Knox update interview. He says they'll use their new capital to expand R&D, grow their team. He also told me the labor crunch has increased demand for efficiency and AI in customer service. And over the last year, we were seeing a lot of places where um, BPOs or business process outsourcing um, businesses 
uh, were going offline, right? So you had, for example, lockdowns in Manila, Philippines, and places like that where, um, or, or across the United States, where a lot of folks in customer service would typically be working. And, um, you know, pe- agents were literally being sent home, right? And so um, not only do we offer tools um, like our assist product that help those agents get back to productivity, um, but as you mentioned, we also offer tools uh, for the businesses to help triage, to help route the um, tickets and inquiries to the right agents at the right time in the right channel and understand what is urgent, what is priority, and what's actually spam. You can see the full streamed conversation on TechCheck's uh, Twitter at CNBC TechCheck or our LinkedIn page. Carl? John, uh, if any of our viewers missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. TechCheck is back in a moment. It's not always easy to get the market moving just hours before a Fed decision and statement. But, well, we have erased some of our losses here. Dow's now down only about 40 points, as Dr. Fauci says. At this point, guys, uh, data shows there is no need for an Omicron-specific vaccine, that the current vaccine uh, and booster regimen is effective in protecting people against the new variant. Uh, We'll see how much comfort the market takes in that statement from a few moments ago. One more thing today, and that's the Financial Times having the innovative idea of naming Elon Musk its person of the year. If that sounds familiar, yep, Time Magazine did that on Monday. In the interview with the FT, Musk mixed it up a bit with uh, Jeff Bezos saying his jokes are an attempt to push Bezos to spend more time at Blue Origin, less time in the hot tub. Uh, More interesting for the business, he seemed comfortable with his U.S. competition from Ford to Rivian, but called out China, quote, I think people are somewhat oblivious to just how much progress China is making. It's incredible comparing it to, quote, the wave of Japanese imports that happened in the 80s and 90s. I think we'll see something similar with the Chinese car companies. Separately, those awards come at a time when Musk is under fire for his leadership at SpaceX. Multiple former employees have publicly accused the company of fostering a culture where sexual harassment was rampant including in some interviews with CNBC. SpaceX didn't respond to our repeated requests for comment. Uh, What a few days it's been, uh, Julia, for Musk, uh, for Tesla, and for some of these accolades that he's been getting. Yeah, accolades. And I think when a a CEO like Musk is getting so much attention, we're starting to hear also about some of the backlash. I mean, he said in that Time magazine interview that the SpaceX Starship facility was like a technology monastery. There's hardly any some, but hardly not many women there. And then, of course, there are some very senior women at SpaceX, such as Gwen Shotwell, one of the most powerful women in the space industry, for sure, John. You have to wonder if these uh, concerns and criticisms are going to continue to grow. Well, a former employee describes men who hug women without consent, stare at women while they work, and interpret every social encounter as an opportunity to date or hit on women in the office. Carl, that doesn't sound like a monastery to me. Uh, We'll be watching uh, along with all of the competitive uh, dynamics in the industry. So Fed decision just a couple hours away now. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.